Okay. Am I on? Come on, you can hear me? I have a couple things in this box. Yeah. And I need someone brave enough to reach in. Don't look. To reach in. Yeah, I knew that Jimmy boys would be game for this. To reach in and, and, and try to identify what it is. Now, I pledge to you it's nothing gross, nothing strange, nothing you'd feel uncomfortable picking up on a counter. In fact, it might be the opposite of that. But, so I want you to stick your hand in, but when you've identified it, don't say it. Just when you know what it is, just pull your hand back out, and then I'll, because I want a few people to try it out. So go ahead, Kevin. Once you figure out you know what they are, you just, you know what they are, Kevin? There's only two? There's only two. Okay, yeah. Yeah, all right, all right. Cameron, don't tell. No, 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 no words. Once you know what it is. All right. Okay. Uh, who else is going to be brave back here? Sharon, uh, come on. Come on, Sharon. Once you, uh, there we go. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Do you know what it is? Don't say it. Yeah. Okay. All right. But there's one or two. There's two. Well, I have to find both. Yeah, yeah. Could, it's not that big of a box. It's not a magic box. <laughs> oh, okay. You know what it is? I think so. Well, they're pretty confident, aren't they? Let's try. Let, let, oh, just, just wait. Let, let's try over here. Hmm. Darcy. Put your hand in. See if you can identify what it is. There's two. There's two of them. You might have to stand up. You know what they are? Don't say. Anyone else? One more person. Dale's shaking her head. No, she just asked me. She just asked me. Come on, Dale. (laughs) Don't stand me up now. (laughs) You would, too. Don't you know what they are? It's not disgusting. You've got to trust me, Dale. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. So, all at once, those of you who put your hands in the box, all at once, I'll count to three, all at once, say what's in the box. One, two, three. A beer bottle. Water bottle. Toblerone? Okay, who who, who said there was Toblerone in the box? Let's see. Toblerone. And what else? Water bottle, beer bottle. Okay, uh, keep coming. Pop bottle is a lot closer. Darcy, help me here. Thank you. A Coke bottle. Wow. I wouldn't bring a beer bottle to church again. Here we go. And, you know, because I thought we should share when we're done today, I... Got a little extra Toblerone. Okay. So why were you able to identify these without even seeing them? Talk to me. And those of you who didn't get to feel it, you kind of know the, the draw. Why? Because you could touch them. The shape, because you touch them. Why, why else? Experience. It's familiar. Right. What you've seen before. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why I, I didn't want to give it away too much earlier when I said, not only would you not want, not, not only would you, um, not mind touching this on a counter, you'd want it. You'd want to touch it. You'd want to, you know, hide it. Uh, so, um, really it's because of their distinctive one-of-a-kind packaging, right? 
I mean, we all were able to identify this just, just by its feel. Well, uh, I love the program Under the Influence with Terry O'Reilly on CBC. Is anyone else with me on that? Terry O'Reilly, uh, recently on his program, he did a, a, um, a, a story or an episode on the power of distinctive packaging. This is in the, in the marketing world. In a recent episode, he called Even in the Dark. And I shamelessly stole that title for today's message, Even in the Dark. This is what Terry said about, about Coke. Listen to this. In 1886, Coca-Cola started as a soda fountain beverage. You could walk into a drugstore, sit at the counter, and a soda jerk, and there were nice guys apparently, would, would pull on a long fountain handle, filling your glass with ice-cold Coke. There's a slide up for this, I think, Owen. There he is. Isn't he a nice guy? Yeah, yeah. He's a super guy. Um, but Coke would not have become the gigantic, world-famous brand it is today if it weren't for one specific innovation. The bottle. Once Coke could be transported and sold in places other than soda fountains, sales exploded. By 1915, Coke's success was attracting a lot of competitors. So the board of directors decided it needed to further differentiate its brand, and it invited eight glass companies to submit designs for a unique Coke bottle. I love the brief Coke gave those companies. This is Terry speaking. Uh, It simply said, we want a design so distinct that it can be identified by feel in the dark or lying broken on the ground. And that's that at all. The eventual winner was the Root Glass Company of Terre Haute, Indiana. The firm had decided to base their design on Coke's two main ingredients, the cocoa leaf and the cola nut. But when they went to the library to look for pictures, they couldn't find any. But they did discover the photo of a gourd-shaped cocoa pod in the Encyclopedia Britannica and took that as their inspiration. They didn't have Google back then, you know. Um, Over the next 24 hours, employee Earl Dean sketched out a design Gently curved, flat on the bottom, slim up top. Next slide. There we go. That's his original, that's his original sketch. And from that was born the classic Coke bottle we know today. By 1928, Coke bottles had overtaken soda fountain sales. By 1949, some of you were alive then, 33 years after its introduction, 99% of North Americans could identify a Coke bottle by its silhouette, alone. Then in 1960, the curved Coke bottle containing the word Coca-Cola was registered as a trademark, becoming only the second package in history to be granted that protection. The uniqueness of the Coke bottle would go on to become its most powerful branding. And even though it's difficult to buy Coke bottles anymore, although now they're bringing them back as a, you know, novelty, I guess, the silhouette is still a vital part of Coke's advertising. Well, that's Coke. What about the Toblerone bar? (laughs) Some of you just want to eat it, right? Don't want me to talk about it. The Toblerone bar is also recognized for its unique packaging. Again, from um, quoting Terry O'Reilly here. Um, Its unique triangular shape is over 100 years old. And as you can imagine, standing out in the crowded chocolate market is not easy. Created in Bern, Switzerland, Theodore Tobler patented the recipe and the triangle shape in 1909. Today, Toblerone is mostly sold in airports. It's reportedly the third best-selling product in duty-free stores after alcohol and tobacco, accounting for over 40% of Swiss chocolate 
exports. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And much of Toblerone's success can be attributed to one overriding design philosophy. <laughs> it can be identified even in the dark. Even in the dark. Today we're talking about our shape as a church. And here's the question we're asking today. What makes our shape as a church so distinctive that people can identify us even in the dark? Because Jesus has formed us in a certain way and we're uniquely shaped for the mission that God has given us, which is to help people find and follow Jesus. And as we launch into our fall, I like to take some time, right at the start of the launch of things, we're all kind of getting back from summer and we're looking at the fall, to take some time to focus on who we are as the church, how Jesus has shaped us as his people and what he has shaped us for, what makes us unique and remarkable so that we can be readily identified, even in the dark. Our unique shape, I think, is based on three critical who's. Let's go through them quick. The first one is who we worship. Here it is. As a church, as the church of Jesus, as any followers of Jesus gathered anywhere, but particularly as we think about us today, as the church of Jesus, what defines us is that we worship Jesus. Listen to Apostle Peter's words in his first letter, in chapter 2, 9 and 10. Drawing in a lot of imagery and phrases that were applied to God's people through time, generations before, from the Old Testament in particular, he says this and applies it to these scattered Christians all over this uh, area in Asia. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And there's a lot we could unpack in there, all these descriptors of God's people, but that's not where we're going today. But listen to this. All these things are true that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As God's people, we have been designed to worship. The question is, who will we worship? It's obvious when we look around us that people were made for worship. Um, when we look around and see what people are bowing down in front of, what, what people are committing their lives to, what they're willing to sacrifice for, what they're willing to praise, what they're willing to denounce, what they're willing to obey and follow, we see that everyone was made for some kind of worship. Sometimes it's more evident and less evident, but it's true if you look into the life of each and every person, even if the only thing they end up worshiping is themselves. Everyone was made to worship. And what sets Jesus' followers apart in particular is that we worship Jesus. We, we don't worship money. We don't worship nature. We don't worship false gods or ideologies. We, we don't worship our own sexuality or our own leaders or our own goodness. We don't worship Allah or Shiva or the Buddha. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we worship Him by the Holy Spirit He has given to us. We were designed 
to worship. Worship is our central purpose in life and it extends not only to the life we're living now and the daily life and the weekly life and our corporate life and the life of our families, but it extends beyond our life here to the new creation life, the resurrection life. Worship extends and covers all of history and all of creation. Worship defines our very center and it outstrips Everything else that can define us as a church, before we really do anything, before we speak a word, before we, 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 we bend down to serve someone, before we reach out to lead, we worship. Filled with the Spirit of God, we offer praise and glory and honor to the one who loves us and has freed us. So how are we identifiable as a church? Even in the dark, we're identifiable by who we worship. It's our passionate, continual worship of Jesus as our one true Lord that sets us apart as unique. It, it shows that we're not just a social club. We're not just a group of fans that gather. We're not even people like the, who just like to be together or even just like to sing songs. What, what gathers us, what makes us unique is that we worship the one Lord, Jesus Christ. This defines our center. And here's my question. It's kind of a, yes, this is true of us, but I want to ask, is it really true of us? Is it something that identifies us as the Erickson Covenant Church? Are we a people that, at our very center, that it identifies that group of people? Man, they worship Jesus. Like, if I gotta say anything about them, they worship Jesus. That their lives are defined by the worship of the one who loves them and has freed them. That that, that really is, they seem to always be worshiping together. The words they speak and the way they live and when they gather, they're, they're a body who worships. There are people who worship. And maybe I don't understand that. Maybe it's someone that's a little bit, you know, unfamiliar with the whole church thing and, and that's a little bit weird, but, but, but they still can see there's something about these guys. They, they don't seem to care about all the things that, well, I care about. They don't seem to care so much about, all, you know, making it big or, 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 you know, all this other stuff we go after because they're so caught up with their worship of Jesus. Is this true of us? at the Erickson Covenant Church. And I want to ask you, if we could make that a goal this year, that, that we would say, you know what, we're going to do a lot of stuff this year. There's a lot going on. But could it be this year that we say as a community, let's worship together. Let's really worship Jesus together. You know, we're going to be diving into the book of Revelation. Do you know, a lot of and I've been thinking, I might maybe take a little, oh, Lord help us, a survey to, to, to get a sense of where you're at when you hear the words of the book of Revelation. But do you realize the book of Revelation is so much about worship? There's so much in there about worship. And the question, actually, the book of Revelation asks is not if you will worship. It asks who you worship. And the contrast in the book of Revelation is between those who worship the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world or those who worship, yes, you heard it, the beast. And it's this contrast of those who worship. And there are these amazing scenes. There's so many songs and so many worship services and, and we get a window into what's going on as this Lamb, who is Jesus, is worshipped in this amazing book of Revelation. It's really a worship service that gives us perspective on our lives and in the future and on what's going on. That's why I titled this series, Jesus Revealed. Because it's exactly what happens in the book of Revelation as we worship. I want to ask you if you would, as a, as a community, as, if we would commit this year to saying, you know what, we're going to worship together. You know, our, our group of worship leaders, 
and, 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 and uh, this extends beyond just those who are leading, but all of us who are participating. We long, we pray, and we long for us as a community to truly see the Jesus who loves us and has freed us, that we as a community would grow in that. That we would, we would somehow get a vision for this Jesus who loved us and, and loves us now and has called us that, that this would transform our lives as we worship him. That's our goal. That's our prayer. That's our hope. This is, this is why we leave. We don't just stumble up here and sing a few songs. We, we long for the people of God to be caught up in the worship of Jesus. This defines who we are. That's the first who. The next one, it leads straight in. They're connected. We're defined by who we love. We worship because of Jesus and because of who he is and what he's done, but we find out, this is amazing, we find out right off the bat as we're worshiping Jesus that we're not alone. We look around and we realize this is not a solo event. Jesus, who redeemed us, brought us into a family. And so we're worshiping with others with people that I would never have connected with, with people that I would never have met, with, let's be honest, people I would never have liked even. Right? Come on, you can be honest. People that we wouldn't have crossed paths with, that Jesus has brought us together. He's made us not only right with His Father, He's not only removed the barrier when He hung on the cross between us and God, taking care of our sins and dealing with all that junk in our lives so we could be free and have full access to God. Not only that, but at the very same time, He ripped down the dividing walls that existed between people that had kept them apart. Racial lines and and rich and poor and and gender stuff and, and power struggles and ethnicity, all the things that had kept people apart. Jesus tore it all down on the cross. And he made us one. One people. So that we come and we worship, but we realize we're worshiping with our arms around somebody. We're worshiping with others. And we find out that they're not just a weird collection of random people, but that there are brothers and there are sisters in Christ, even if we don't know them. You can look around here today, and there's someone here that you don't know. But if they're a follower of Jesus, they're your brother and they're your sister. And so we're a family. Isn't that amazing? Make no mistake about it. Unity, what draws us together in Christ, this unity that Christ has made, is a very distinctive shape in the world. Unity stands out. Jesus prayed for our unity in in an often quoted prayer of his when he said, may they, and he's speaking of not only his followers that were there with him, but those who would come to believe through their witness. So he's speaking about us as well. He says, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. That you love them as much as you love me. This unity which is expressed in their love for one another and expressed in, in their life together, is so distinctive, so obvious, so remarkable, that the way that they love each other actually reveals the good news about Jesus to the world. Do you hear that? Our unity is so distinctive. The shape that God has given us in that unity is so remarkable that people can see it and through it come to know Jesus. I think that's incredible. Now, one thing I've mentioned a number of times, I know, but I think... I can say it again, and that's this. Unity, and our love for each other, is not so much something that we aspire to. It's actually a fact that we need to live out. What I mean by that is this. 
Jesus has already made us one. Now, sometimes I don't get along with you. You don't like me. And sometimes we, or I ignore you, you know. I'm just speaking hypothetically here. But here's the thing. We are one in Christ. That's a fact. Jesus established that fact on the cross. He dealt with it. We are one. And so the call to be unified is a call to live out what is already true. That we are one in Christ. That we are unified in Him. That He has created us as brothers and sisters in His one family. It's one of the things I so appreciate about the covenant. About the covenant church. The covenant denomination. I know we're from lots of different denominations here. I am too. But one of the things I've appreciated is I've, I've, as I've dug into the history of the covenant is basically their, their uh, focus on, like, let's remember that we are one in Christ. And yeah, there's lots of stuff that we talk about, debate about, try to figure out together. But all of that stuff, when they figure out how the baptism thing works, or when they figure out how to do mission, or how to read our Bibles, or when they figure out whether I should be wearing robes and not jeans, because there are covenant churches where the pastor wears robes. I'm going to freak you all out, I know. <laughs> but all that stuff, oh yeah, as brothers and sisters in the same family, we can talk about that. It doesn't change the fact that we are one in Christ. And I love it for now, 100 and almost 130 years as a denomination, that's been so, so central that it's allowed us to be quite a diverse community with a lot of difference. But knowing that at the very heart, we are, to quote the original Dudes, they quoted from the Psalms, said, we're companions of all who fear God. But all who follow Jesus are our brothers and sisters. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He's made us, he's made us one. So let me ask you this. Not only do we want to be a community this year that worships, we want to be a community that truly loves. And I, I know this is a loving community. But I've been thinking about how do we grow in that? Not how do we necessarily grow in our unity. You do understand we are one. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're one. But how do we actually live into that? How do we express that? How, do we, how does that become more real in our lives? And so here's my suggestion. It actually starts quite simple. Are you ready for this? I want to I show you this is critical stuff. This is how it starts. Unity. Expressing the unity we have in Christ. It starts like this. Hi, I'm Tom. What's your name? Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Great to meet you. Nice to meet Are you alone here today? It starts by introducing yourself to someone that you don't know. Now, when you look around, every one of us can identify someone here today that we don't know. Is that true? Is that true? Yeah, it is. So, here's the challenge. Now, lest you mob the people that really are new. Sorry, (laughs) folks. If you're visiting here today, I apologize. You're going to get a lot of handshakes today, but that's okay. You know, We've been growing lots as a church, and there's lots of new folks around, and I get that. If you've been here more than about three months, other people think you're, you've been here forever. It's true, you know. If you're new today, or maybe you've been around three months, maybe you've been around six months, and you think, well, all these people know each other. They don't. They don't. Lots of people here don't. Some folks have been here even a long time, because there's been a lot of new people that have joined the church they're like, they can't figure out what end is up. Can I get an amen from those who've been here long? Or, yeah. So everyone kind of feels like everyone else knows each other, and they're the odd ones out, but they're not. Everyone's trying to get to know one another for the first time. So here, I'm just naming this because I really think it starts this year, it starts today, 
by saying, you know what, when we gather, wherever we gather, maybe in our connect groups this fall, but uh, here in Sunday morning, would we try as a community, would we even take it on ourselves, would each one of us say, you know what, this morning I'm going to do a lot of things. I'm going to listen to God's word preach, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to worship, and I'm going to, I'm going to connect with folks that I know and love. But you know what? I'm going to have a goal. I'm going to meet one person that I haven't met before. Would you all be willing to try that? Yeah. It starts there. It really does. It starts by opening ourselves up and saying, "I'm going to just stick up my hand, and and it's I won't make a fool out of myself because hey." We're all friends here. And guess what? We're connected through Jesus. The other one, which we'll be talking a lot more about the next few weeks, I think it's critical to us expressing our unity and and living out our love. And that is, we want this fall, every person in our church to be in a connect group. It's what we're calling our small groups. We're running our connect groups this fall from the first week of October to the first week of December. It's nine weeks long. That's the only commitment we're asking from you. Nine weeks. And what we're going to do as a, as a church is we're going to travel through the seven messages that Jesus gave to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. We're all going to do that together, every one of our groups. It's going to be awesome. You don't believe me, but it will be awesome. But here's the, the, the main uh, reason. We want to, yeah, we want to get around Revelation. We want to travel through that together, and I think that's going to be great. But we call them connect groups for a purpose. Because it's an opportunity for you and I to get into a group with some folks that we, some of them we know and others we don't. We can't love one another in, such, in the distinctive kind of way that Jesus has called us to do that. We can't love people that we don't even know. And so not only does it start with shaking hands and get to know folks, but by joining a connect group this fall, by taking the risk and signing up and getting in a group, and I know that can be weird and strange, and you're going to someone's house you don't know, and you don't know who's going to be there. I get how weird that can be. But if you will have the bravery to try, you will have an opportunity to connect and make some new friends. That is actually where it starts for a lot of us, to living out the unity that Jesus has called us to live out, the unity that he's already established for us, by connecting with one another, by getting to know one another. I can't love you if I don't know your name. I can't love you if I don't know whether you're married or not, or have kids or not, or what, where you work, or what some of the challenges you have in life, or, or some of your history and some of your story. I can't really love you unless I know those things. And it starts with this basic connection. So that's my challenge to you. You'll hear more about that as the, as the uh, September rolls on. But we want this shape that Jesus gives us unity to define us, to be true of us in our lives and in our community. That's the second who. So who we worship, who we love, and then the third who, which is defining for us, is who we serve. Who we serve sets us apart. As the people of Jesus, we serve the least, the lost, and the lonely. We serve the rich, and the poor. We, we serve the oppressed and the oppressor. We serve the victim and the aggressor. We love those who've been forgotten. We love those who, who, who no one notices whether they're in the gutter or whether they're in a boardroom. We serve humbly. We serve sacrificially. We serve with no other hope than that people would come closer at least to understanding that there's a God who loves them. 
We serve so that somehow through our actions, people will realize that they have value. That they have value to you. And that maybe, just maybe, they'll come closer or maybe they'll come to understand that they have value in God's eyes. That He created them. That He sent His Son Jesus to find them, to rescue them. That He's got a plan for them. That He's excited about them. That He wants to give them a fresh start. That as we serve people where they are at, they come to understand and see the love that Jesus has for them. This defines us. How we serve who we love, where we show up to give, to wash, to listen, to help. The lives that are touched and healed by Jesus through us, that defines who we are. That is a distinctive shape that is recognizable even in the dark. You know, I was reminded of a story in Luke chapter 7 where John the Baptist, who's having a bit of a crisis, He's having an identity crisis, but not about himself. Well, it's probably connected to who he is. But really, he's having an identity crisis about Jesus. Because he's been thrown in jail. And those of you who are a little newer to things, John the Baptist was this guy, wild prophetic guy, who was sent as the kind of the, the advance team for Jesus. And he came on the scene to set things up so that people were ready to receive the message that, and, and really ready to receive Jesus when he showed up in the scene. So he's there, their time overlapped a bit, but then John got thrown in jail for confronting a leader about his sexual infidelity. Not smart, but it was right. And here he is in jail because he's done what God had called him to do. But he's in jail and he's starting to wonder about this Jesus because somehow what Jesus is doing isn't quite adding up to even what John the Baptist expected. And so he sends a couple of his followers to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? He's having an identity crisis about Jesus. He wants to know if Jesus really is the Messiah, really is the one, the rescuer, the deliverer, the savior that's been sent from God. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers. Listen to what Jesus says. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See what Jesus did there? John's having an identity crisis about Jesus, and Jesus points him to the lives that are being transformed by his ministry. He says, you're wondering about who I am. Look at the proof in the lives of people who are being healed, who are finding finding out about the good news that God loves them where they're at, that God is restoring them to life. You know what? This is true of us too. That what identifies us That if people were to ask, what is that group all about? Who are they? That we can be identified by the people who are being loved into the kingdom, by the lives that are being transformed, by people who have been so forgotten that no one else noticed, people who have woken up for days, weeks, months, and wondered, does anyone even know if I'm alive? Does anyone even care? If I hadn't woken up this morning, would anyone have noticed? Those kind of people... 
that families that are fractured or struggling to, to put it all together and are wondering if they can make ends meet financially or emotionally or spiritually. People who are, who are, whose lives have been just destroyed by addiction. That, that people's lives are being transformed, being healed, that, that families are being restored, that people who, who maybe had it all together, maybe had, they had the, the fancy car, they had the good job, but their lives were hollow. That they've come to understand that they have a purpose in life. That what identifies us as the church, even in the dark, is the fact that the blind are seeing, that the lame are walking, that the poor are having the good news preached to them, that lives are being transformed through the healing power of Jesus, through the people that we are serving, that we are loving. Now, when you put all of this together, who we worship, which I think, you know, I mean, just to give you another, I think who we worship can be represented by our hands lifted up. And who we love can be represented by an embrace. And who we serve by our hands going down. When you think of those three movements, who we worship, who we love, and who we serve, when you put it all together, it becomes very clear why God's people can be identified even in the dark. You put it all together, and it's obvious why Jesus, when speaking to his own disciples, speaking about his followers, he called them, he called us, the light of the world. As God's people, we can be identified even in the dark, but not only because of our shape, but because our very shape brings light to the darkness itself. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, hear the connection here, in the same way, let your good deeds, the way you love and serve, the way that you reach out, the way that you touch, let your good deeds shine out for all to see. So everyone, listen to this, will praise your heavenly Father. As people come to see and experience the love of Jesus from us, as they are, as they come to understand that they are precious in God's sight, and they come, they're brought into the family, and they, they realize they're connected, and then they worship Jesus. Do you see how all three of those things are there? Our worship of Jesus, our love for each other, and our service to the world are not only being identifiable even in the dark, but they are transforming the darkness itself into light. So one of these Coke and Toblerone, what do they have to do with the church? You know, Terry O'Reilly really points out how this packaging is, is distinctive. It's, it's something we've talked about. It, it's, it, it's distinctive and it's noticeable and it's identifiable. But more than that, actually, the packaging is designed to be attractive. Did you know that? You should listen to that program. You'd really enjoy it. There's a lot more there. The the smooth curves of this Coke bottle are attractive. The sharp promise of a Toblerone is very attractive. Some of you are attracted right now. They're designed to draw us in. And here's the connection. This shape that Jesus has given us, passionate worship, unified love, sacrificial service, is not only distinctive, it not only sets us apart, it is deeply, deeply attractive. In a world that is awash with the worship of false gods, the worship of money, the worship of sex, the, the worship of career, the worship of gods that bind and destroy. 
That when people begin to see and experience a community of people that are not bound by whom they worship, but are freed by the one they worship. As they see a group of people who are worshiping Jesus, who has freed them from their sin, has given them purpose in life, has washed their lives clean and said, I have called you and I've named you and I know you and I have a purpose and a a life for you to live. As people experience and see a community worshiping like that, folks, that is deeply, deeply attractive. In a world that is so fractured by hatred and greed, where nations war against nations and families are broken apart, in a world where people are are constantly at each other's throats, where they're playing power games, whether it's at work or at school or, or, or at home, in a world that is so deeply divided, to see a community of people that love each other, the unlikeliest of folks, you understand, People that should never have been in the same room, let alone friends, let alone loving one another, let alone serving each other, let alone getting each other's lives and encouraging one another. For, for people to begin to see that and experience that, that is deeply attractive. And in a world where people are so ignored, so lonely, so confused, where the lost are wandering off after one unfulfilling product to the next unfulfilling relationship. For them to somehow, by, by God's design, by, by happenstance, somehow run into the church at work, at school, on the street, in the coffee shop, and somehow begin to experience the hands and the feet of Jesus, that people are serving them and are listening to them and are loving them in the name of Jesus, as people begin to realize that they have purpose and they have value, that they're precious, that they're loved, that, that their life is so much bigger than their job or their, 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 their background or their struggles or their addictions. As people come to understand that, friends, that is deeply, deeply attractive. Jesus has made us so that our shape is distinctive and attractive by who we worship and who we love and who we serve. And I think we can summarize it by saying that if the world can't identify us even in the dark, then we better turn up the light. Jesus has called us to do it. He's called us to be his church, the light in the world. And my question to us today is will we be that kind of church? <laughs> will we be the kind of church that says, I am, I am longing to worship Jesus with my brothers and sisters. That there may be a thousand other things on my list of things to do, but getting together with my brothers and sisters to worship the Jesus who has freed me outstrips everything. Will we be that kind of a church? Will we be the kind of church that says, yeah, I know, it might be weird to sign up for a group with people I don't know, and guess what? There might be someone in that group that's awkward. It might be you. (laughs) And there might be someone in that group that I have an issue with. Will we be the kind of church that says, because of what Jesus has done for me, for us, we are going to reach out our hand We're going to sign up for a group. We're going to make loving one another a reality in our lives. Will we be that kind of a church? 
Would we be the kind of church this year that says, as a community, maybe it's as a connect group, maybe it's as a group of friends, maybe it's just you in your neighborhood. Will you be the church of Jesus Christ serving the least, the lost, and the lonely? Having your eyes open to see those around you who don't know their value in Christ, who don't know the God who loves them, who don't know that Jesus has come to rescue them and free them and give them the life they could not imagine. Will we be the kind of church that serves that way in the name of Jesus? That is our challenge. That's our invitation. It's the shape Jesus has given us so that we can be identified by a dark and dying world because we're the light showing them the way to Jesus. Let's be that kind of church this year. Let's pray. Jesus, you have called us to follow you You have given us your Holy Spirit. You have uniquely shaped us because of who you are and what you've done and who you've called us to be. And so, Jesus, as the Erickson Covenant Church, we ask, Lord Jesus, that this year we would be truly defined by our passionate worship of you, by our unified love for each other, and by our sacrificial service to the world. May your courage, may your strength, may your wisdom and your power fill us by your Holy Spirit so that we are all that you have created us to be and so that this year many people find you and follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming today. We have an